and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Friday, August the 25th, and welcome to Pole Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election, which is now only 73 days away. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today is David Brady, Stanford University political scientist and Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Also sitting in is Doug Rivers, Hoover Institution Research Senior Fellow, excuse me, and Chief Scientist for the international polling firm YouGov, which is partnered with The Economist and also conducts a battleground poll at CBS News that is a must-read for all you election watchers. Gentlemen, polls everywhere, including a YouGov Economist poll that was in the field from August 19th to 23rd. And the numbers show a four-point race, which is a little narrow, I believe, Dave and Doug, that some other polls that have this race anywhere out to six, seven. I think Quinnipiac comes in at about 10 points. Uh, four-way race, and they have it at 42 for Hillary and 38% for Donald Trump. They strike me as very weak numbers, 42 and 38, even in a four-way race. Uh, you bet. That's uh, smaller numbers of people knowing how they're going to vote at this stage, which means that we have a larger block uh, of undecided and third-party voters and people who say they're not going to vote than we've had uh, in uh, the last couple of cycles. Um, that means, uh, I think, along with the general tightening uh, across most of the polls, have shown a uh, several-point movement in Trump's direction uh, the last week uh, to 10 days, uh, that we do have a race, uh, at least in terms of the national vote split. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be a runaway election at this point. Right. Uh, a few numbers out of this poll. Uh, Trump's favorable is 35 percent. His unfavorable is 63 percent. Uh, in political verbiage, that puts him 28 points underwater, which I don't have the records in front of me, but that has to be some sort of uh, ignominious mark at this point in election. Her numbers are better, even though they too are bad. She is at 44% favorable and 53% unfavorable. She's nine points underwater. Do you two happen to know if a person has ever been elected president of the United States with their numbers underwater? I don't think so, uh, as far as I've seen in terms of looking at the past favorability ratings. But you know, Bill, that in California, you work for Pete Wilson, his numbers, uh, he was under in terms of popularity, right. and he actually beat the bejesus out of uh, Kathleen Brown. Right. So we know that it's possible, and I think we've always known in this election <clears throat> that it's just a question of, uh, in some way I put it, the evil of two lessers. Uh, but the point really is that the election is about Trump wants to make, if he can make Hillary Clinton and her honesty the issue, right. he does well. And she's going to keep pushing on the fact that uh, all the things that Donald Trump has done wrong. And uh, if he's the issue, then he loses. So it's a big negative campaign. So it's not surprising to me that there are so many undecided. There are more people who say they're voting for a third party. I'm not sure of who I'm going to vote for and who won't vote by five to seven times more than was true in 2008 and 2012. In terms of people sitting out there on the fence right now, it's about, what, one in seven voters right now have not made up their minds? What are they waiting for? Yeah, but for? more like one in four 
if you count the third-party yeah. voters okay. or the people who say they're not mm -hmm. going to vote, which is usually in the low single digits at this point. Yeah, and we did a we just uh, I just been looking at the data from <coughs> poll. Doug did uh, 1,500 people in mid-August, and um, on that poll, 14% said they weren't sure who they're going to vote for. 14% said they wouldn't vote. And uh, that's 28%. And when you add in those who are voting for uh, a third party, it's close to one third of the electorate that is uh, on that poll says they're, they're not going to, they're, they're simply not, uh, they're, they're not engaged. They, they don't like the candidates. I, I ran some uh, uh, data on that today, and it, it's kind of interesting. So the way they set it up was among people who were said they're voting for a third party, uh, or they're undecided, or they won't vote, we asked them a forced question and said, if you had to choose mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, or and that is interesting. 32% chose Clinton over Trump. 28% uh, chose Trump. 40% of those people were not saying they're not sure, or I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to commit to either one of them. And when I looked at the 40% who said they wouldn't vote on that, as opposed to the one, the dislike, uh, the people, the, of those people, 9% uh, like Trump, 11% like Hillary Clinton, and of the ones where they were forced to choose, where they, they were willing to choose, I'll say Clinton or that, mm -hmm. uh, the ratings were four times as high, 35%, 38% said they liked them mildly at least. These, that, those people who say they're not voting, and then I went to the variable where you ask, please give an individual description of these people, and the things that pop up are, uh, for Trump, narcissistic, narcissistic bully, on Hillary Clinton, she lies, you can't trust her. These people are, those, that 14% of uh, the electorate that won't choose on this, even when you try and force them, they are not happy with either candidate. Now, with a 44% approval rating, you're obviously not doing handstands if you're Hillary Clinton's <laughs> campaign. Yeah. But you can probably abide with that given your opponent's numbers. And there he is down at 35%. Doug, why is he stuck in the mid-30s? Why can't he grow? Well, he, he's run a campaign that is targeted at a pretty narrow slice of the electorate. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's essentially angry white men, uh, who, of whom 20% uh, of the electorate falls into that category, and now he's looking for a way to uh, uh, go outside of that category. Uh, I think it's interesting with the last change in command at the Trump campaign, we thought we were going to see the Donald Trump of old, and in fact, he seems to be doing exactly that, of, um, of trying to reach out a little bit, of apologizing, of softening his position on immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, be very interesting to see whether there's a backlash on that. By the that. way, he, he just flipped back. I, saw, I just watched a quick headline while I was sitting out there it's in MSNBC. Back to deportation. So, he's he's deporting. so today he's, he's deporting. Yeah, he flipped back. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll just deport on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and on the other days we'll we'll try to work with them. So on Friday, August the 25th, he's now pro-deportation. But, but you've been looking inside Trump's numbers, and you're seeing just some basic flaws in perception. What, what are some of the more glaring weaknesses? Yeah, has? so the obvious ones is the risk of uh, Trump as president. Is, is he qualified? Um, and this is the issue that obviously the Clinton campaign wants to push. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hillary Clinton has a resume so that most people, even Republicans, a majority uh, of Republicans, think that uh, Clinton is qualified to be president. Uh, Trump's problem is uh, only 64% of Republicans think he's qualified to be president. 
Uh, that's a terrible number uh, for a candidate at this stage. Similarly, if you ask, do you think Donald Trump is ready to be um, commander-in-chief? 62% of Republicans say yes. Uh, for Republicans, that's traditionally the main qualification uh, that you want in a president. And a third of the Republicans don't think he has it. Um, on the other hand, Clinton's weakness, uh, I don't think this is news to anybody, uh, is that she has problems with trust and honesty. Uh, only um, uh, if you uh, look at uh, Democrats, uh, the fraction that think that uh, Hillary is um, trustworthy and honest is 54%. That's a pretty <laughs> crappy number. Like, uh, um, and uh, and uh, only 6% uh, of the Republicans uh, think that as well. So, you know, we have a situation where the candidates have very obvious and glaring weaknesses. And what their campaigns need to do is to stick to the message that will focus on that. Uh, and if they do that, it'll be a really depressing couple of months of negative campaigning. Uh, but until uh, the Trump campaign can stick to the issue they can win on, which is Hillary is, right. is crooked, uh, and get off the distractions, they're going to uh, continue to have bad weeks. So I, ha I have to say, when Bill started the program, I said, 73 days to go. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, God, <laughs> will it never end? Uh, Precisely because of that, it's, it is that. I, I do have a question for both of you guys, though. Uh, something has been I've been thinking about, uh, trying to think about for a while, came up last week when the Clintons uh, said they couldn't find, they were having a hard time finding someone to play Donald Trump in the debates. Right. And when you think about it, and Bill, you've been involved in debates before, well, it, it does seem it does seem hard. What Trump is the kind of guy who will look like he'll say anything or do anything. Mm -hmm. I think that does present a bit of a problem. I'd be interested in your speculation on that. You need somebody on a stage with you in rehearsal just so you get used to it. Uh, we are here at Stanford University, and Stanford uh, benefits from technology when it comes to sports. And the football team had a rather interesting breakthrough about a year ago. A company came forward and developed a virtual reality helmet that a quarterback can put on, and it simulates being in live action. So instead of going through walking through a drill where people aren't really coming at you, you put on this helmet, and it's coming at you in real time, and you're making decisions. <laughs> and if you look at the Stanford quarterback's numbers, once he starts doing this last year, his numbers spike. The point is, he got as close to live action as you could. You're Hillary Clinton going on a debate stage with Donald Trump. He is going to insult you seven ways to sundown and say things very personal to get under your skin. Uh, it is not, I can tell you, having been involved in this, it's both fun to do it to a candidate. On the other hand, understanding it may be the last time you're with the candidate when <laughs> you're with Hillary Clinton and making some crack about his, or her husband or, or you know, their finances or what have you, but it has to be done in person. You have to get with her and get under her skin and get her prepared for these things. I wrote a column um, about the debates, and my thought was that for Trump, he needs to not be so much confrontational, but he needs to just kind of put her off guard in this respect. He is actually quicker on stage than she is. She tends to be cautious. She tends to get in a kind of rambling statement. She's always afraid of getting pinned down. Whatever it was that Trump needs to think about saying things such as, I pledge to serve only one term. I challenge you, Hillary, to, play, to, to take an oath with me saying that you know, your appointees will not do separate jobs like Uma Abedin did. Put her just in a series of corners on the spot to try to put her on the defensive. But, hmm. but you're right. It's very, very hard to find a good Trump surrogate these days. 
Doug is, Doug is flabbergasted. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't volunteer for that. I know Dave Brady has uh, done preparation for a vice presidential candidate <laughs> once, which was uh, Admiral James Stockdale, um, who uh, started out by saying, who am I and why am I here? Great advice, Dave. <laughs> That's actually a little unfair. That is uh, a little unfair. Uh, somebody who could step in for Donald Trump, except that he has the wrong accent, is Niles Farage, who was in mm -hmm. Mississippi. Doug, what yeah. was Nas Farage doing in Mississippi this week? Oh, well, trying to bring, uh, bring to Trump the magic of Brexit. Uh, it is interesting. The Brexit, uh, the pro-Brexit voters look a lot like the Trump voters. There was a gender gap, which isn't typical right. in British politics. It was a kind of uh, revolt against the urban elite. Nas Farage, by the way, was the leader of? Of the UKIP party, which is a uh, right-wing party in the UK that's... Um, somewhat nativists and mm -hmm. um, that gets a decent share of the vote though not many parliamentary seats. Right. But he is sort of a British Donald Trump in that regard. Yes. I think most voters have no idea who he is. But Or um, he's much more articulate than <laughs> Donald Trump. He's not a But you spent a good portion of twenty sixteen <clears throat> polling tracking Brexit. Yeah, so we saw the same thing in Brexit uh, that I think we're seeing in Trump. Uh, which is uh, the uh, online polls in particular uh, showed uh, a higher fraction for Brexit uh, the, uh, than people thought was going to be the result. There was almost complete consensus among uh, elites in London that uh, Remain would win, uh, that uh, Britain would stay part of Europe. Uh, and uh, in fact, it turned out to be there was a bigger vote for leave uh, than people anticipated. And the question was, were people um, either not telling pollsters what they really were going to do? Were they embarrassed or were they not participating? Uh, I tend to think the problem in the polls is much less people telling pollsters something different from what they're going to do than people choosing not to participate. And that leads into a line of reasoning that came out of the Trump campaign this week. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, who is one of the two principals brought on board to run the campaign, she's a pollster, and uh, she has come up with a line that she calls the undercover Trump voter. And what she claims is that there is a hidden stash of white, educated voters who will not tell pollsters that they are going to vote for Donald Trump, but they plan to vote for Donald Trump. We can beat this around. It's an interesting kind of logical conclusion that you're too ashamed to admit you're going to vote for Trump, but you won't tell a stranger. Yeah, <laughs> so it doesn't of, quite that, hold up. That's but, sort of the Bradley effect. Well, it does. And so it ties into exactly what I was going to raise here. As political scientists, you're probably sick of this phrase, but let's talk about this for a minute because it was born here in California in the 1980s. And Dave, what is the Bradley effect? The Bradley effect was in the uh, gubernatorial election. Bradley was a black mayor of Los Angeles and in the polls. Uh, he was consistently ahead, but then he ended up losing. I believe it was Duke Magian that he lost to. Twice. Yep. But, but the point is that uh, in those days, polls were done face-to-face, -face, and it was white voters wouldn't tell black interviewers that they wouldn't vote for Bradley. That, that was the effect. And if you remember in 2008, there was a lot of hand-waving, oh, we, Obama won't win because of that. Right. This, this reminds me of the, uh, so this claim that there's these voters out there. Now it's cast and polling, but I, I think those voters are much like all the Barry Goldwater voters, all of the secret conservatives that were just out there and wouldn't vote in past elections because 
The parties were too much alike, tweedledee, tweedledum. And now that you had a real candidate that was on the right, they'd all come out and vote. So I, I, uh, I think it's, I think it's grasping at straws. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Kellyanne Conway is in her current position because uh, Trump's previous pollster was bringing him bad news, and he didn't like to hear it. Uh, that was uh, Fabrizio. Um, the Bradley effect. Um, is much talked about, uh, but it's pretty much an urban legend. Uh, there was a poll in 1982 that showed Bradley ahead, and he lost the election by a sizable amount. Uh, there have been quite a few polling misses over the last decade um, that don't have anything to do with uh, race or uh, voters not telling uh, people how they were going to vote. Uh, but having said that, uh, you know, I've looked closely at our data, and we do see some evidence that Trump may be stronger than the top-line poll numbers suggest at this point. Not a lot of evidence. It's uh, some guesses, and um, uh, so we're closely looking at the methodology to see if there are any places where there's a weakness. Now, when you do the state-by-state polls, uh, do you see any of that there? The state-by-state geography looks quite bad for Trump at this point. Um, You know, we've been talking about Utah and Missouri, and when Republican candidates have to worry about Utah and Missouri, uh, it's not a good year for them. They should be worrying about Pennsylvania and Michigan. Uh, If those states were in play, uh, then the Democrats should be worried. Uh, But what I'm seeing right now is that it looks like Clinton has decent leads in Florida, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, um, Virginia doesn't even look competitive at this point. Uh, North Carolina looks close. That's a must-win for a Republican. Uh, you know, so the the electoral map does does not at this stage look very good for Trump. I think I sent both of you this morning, or I hope I did, a paper by two young political scientists that looked at data talking about. What is the percentage? What percentage of the what percentage of the vote? What how high? Uh, how much of a jump can you get in a state, in a crucial state, by uh, really working it and having a big organization? Mm-hmm. And they estimated seven percent. It was kind of an interesting study if you had a chance to look at it. But I do think uh, the smallest number I've seen is two and a half percent. And so I, I think uh, the fact that Trump does not have that in these states. About uh, is going to make a difference. I don't know whether that seven percent number in the paper I sent you today is right, but it was a uh, nice. I thought it was a pretty nice paper, and it might be that high. Let me credit the authors, or Ryan Ennis and uh, Anthony Fowler. Um, and what they did uh, in this study is they looked at battleground states, um, metropolitan areas that crossed over between battleground and non-battleground states. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea was that you're basically getting exposed to the same uh, media in both places, uh, but there um, is considerable GOTV effort in the state where the race is close and not obviously uh, across the state border if the state is not competitive. Um, and then you don't send. So that yeah. example, so you um, take Chicago, right. you're Chicago, Illinois, not competitive, maybe Indiana was. That, that's the point. And so you get the same TV coverage, but what you don't get is the people mm-hmm. coming out to visit and uh, that sort yeah. of thing. Um, I have, uh, I think, you know, very interesting paper. Uh, 
I do not believe a seven-point effect. Um, there are a few reasons for that. The first thing is uh, they don't have a good way of essentially separating out uh, the effect of closeness of the race from uh, not being contested. That is, people like to vote in races where they think the candidates are relatively close and not so much in races where they're 10, 20 points apart. But you do believe um, that they do make a difference. Well, and then the second thing is how big can the turnout effect be? Um, so registered voter turnout in the U.S. is on the order of 85 to 90 percent. Um, so uh, a big chunk of the ground game is getting people registered, which right. the Democratic organizations do quite a good job at uh, these days. Um, but uh, when you're uh, at this point in the year, um, well, a month before the election, you basically uh, registration efforts are too late. Right. Um, so the effect you can have if the people are registered at this point is nowhere close to 7%. There just isn't that much room to move turnout around. Right. A great place to look at this this year is Florida. Um, on the one hand, Republican registration is up in the last year in Florida, as it is in Ohio and Pennsylvania. But if you look at the two campaigns' approaches in Florida, Trump is doing what he did in the primaries. He's relying on name recognition, popping mm -hmm. in for events. And she has soldiers on the ground, and they're just going precinct to precinct and just trying to pull out the bodies. And so one of these two strategies work. By the way, uh, getting back to the question of the Bradley effect as it pertains to Trump, 34 primaries in 2016 where Trump was on the ballot, 15 times uh, his poll numbers are less than his vote total. In other words, 15 mm -hmm. times you can argue there was a Bradley effect. Yeah. The numbers didn't hold up compared to the polls. But 19 times his poll numbers were better than his actual vote. So <clears throat> yeah. it sounds like they're grasping at a straw. Yeah, overall there wasn't a lot of correlation there. Uh, I would say our polls uh, were uh, a few points to Trump in the primaries. Um, and uh, the primaries are very hard to poll in because it depends a lot on what uh, turnout assumptions you're making and who you, right. who you're modeling the primary electorate is including. Uh, and we went at various times during the year to tighter and looser definitions of likely uh, primary voters, and it, it had a pretty substantial effect on the Trump vote. In the general election, uh, turnout effects are grossly exaggerated. Uh, the fact of the matter is that all groups tend to go up and down uh, about the same between elections. Uh, it's, um, you know, uh, from one election to the next, the turnout rate might change by five or seven points. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the groups tend to go up and down together, so their share of the electorate doesn't move much at all. So if you uh, had to guess a percent, Imagine a, a one a classic case where, say, Trump does nothing, and Clinton does everything she can do. What two percent? Well, as a political scientist, I'm dying to see this experiment. Yeah. Let's have a race which is yeah. close, and uh, one side has no ground game and yeah. does no advertising. And that might actually give us a chance yeah. of figuring out what these effects are. Um, but the other thing to remember is the ground game is really important for Democrats. Uh, the Democrats move around a lot, so registering them is hard work. Uh, they tend uh, They don't vote as often. Uh, uh, and so consistently what you'll see is among registered voters, Republicans will be doing better, um, excuse me, Democrats will be doing better among registered voters than likely voters. And Democrats need to make up that difference. 
Um, so while I think Trump will be hurt from the lack of a ground game, he wouldn't be hurt nearly as much as a Democratic candidate were trying to run that style yeah, of but campaign. But in her case, it's kind of interesting gas break um, aspect to this in that she wants to go out and talk about issues that motivate Democrats to come out to the polls. But clearly her strategy for the next 70-plus days is to remind you on a daily basis how awful Donald Trump is. So she's going to have to find a very clever way to to get the word out to Democrats to vote. Because it seems to me that just a, a, a relentlessly negative message maybe doesn't get people as motivated as a reason to remind them of things you want to do for them while you're in office. Well, yeah, a, though there are different ways to mobilize yeah. the base. And targeting is relatively effective in mobilizing the base uh, because you can have your surrogates, uh, the people going door to door and so forth, saying things that you might not want to say uh, in the national media. Well, on Salaharan Iyengar showed some time ago that uh, normally negative campaigning causes the vote to decrease a bit mm -hmm. because right. people don't like the campaign. Right. So this is going to be interesting because it's going to be the most, ne both candidates' strategy is negative. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, my impression is that Clinton has actually not gone heavily on the negative at this point. She's mostly shut up and let Trump, uh, you know, suck the oxygen out on a whole bunch of things that aren't helpful to him. Right. Um, what she, if I were advising her, I would say hold your fire till he seems to be scoring some points. Well, I, when I thought that, I, I would have said I agreed with that till yesterday. I thought on the race issue. I thought she came out way too heavily on that. Whatever Trump said, he said he's already in, he he's not doing well among African American and Latino voters. So why would you why would you bring in you bringing in the hard right part, well, the like Nazi the, part of the Republican actually, I think party? That's actually that's actually I think yeah. a very clever ploy in this yeah. regard. Really, there are Repu bad. the Republicans sitting out there tr still trying to make a decision of can I tolerate Donald Trump. And it's not just can I tolerate Donald Trump, but can I tolerate those people who stand for Donald Trump? Because you know Republicans like this, as do I, and it's not just Trump himself, but mm -hmm. it's also that there's a certain day class A element behind him. Uh, the, it's a strategy that I called, if her campaign is called on with her, it's a strategy It's called, are you with them? And what she's trying to do, I think, is she's trying to peel off Republicans, trying to say, can you really not, you know, could, if you can even think about voting for Donald Trump, look at the people who support him. You know, I don't think that speech was directed so much as a reaction to the racial attack as it was the fact that he hired somebody from Breitbart Communications to run his campaign. So why not go out and talk about alt.right? Now, it may be a great fundraising tool if you're alt.right, you enjoy it. But yeah. I think to the extent that she can continue just to throw chaos into the Republican well, I side. See the, uh, I see the strategy, and I guess right. I guess for me is uh, when she does that, all kinds of Americans who want their politics to be normal, which is most Americans, I think, right. they go, that's disgusting. Uh, he's disgusting, she's disgusting. And so I see the strategy. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. You make a good point. No, I, mean, I she, see what she's trying she, to do. We, there's, there's an overword used in politics this year, pivot. If you were doing the drinking game with pivot, you'd be under the table by now. You're sick of hearing it. Uh, but she's going to have to pivot, and I suspect she will pivot well after the election, saying yeah. now it must all come together while he's yeah. out there complaining about things being lost. One thing I didn't mention, by the way, out of The Economist, so I'm curious about a year ago, YouGov Economist gave Congress a whopping 16% approval rating. 
And guess what? Your poll just gave them a whopping 12% rating. <laughs> They've managed to lose one-fourth of their numbers that high. Yeah. It's, yeah. It reminds me of the line of World War I about the German general who talks about the alliance with the Austrian Hungary and power, and he says, we are shackled to a corpse. <laughs> and at 12%, the Congress is a corpse. <clears throat> Yes, and even Republicans who control Congress don't seem to like Congress much. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, effectively what Trump exploited in the spring, which is the Republican base wasn't terribly enthused about Republicans in Congress. Um, you know, the question is, what is driving this? Uh, the, uh, you know, people don't like the uh, to see how the sausage is made, and Congress is... Uh, they either are compromising their principles, uh, which people don't like, uh, or they're exercising their principles, which leads to conflict and dissension, which people don't like. Um, you know, we're in a world where Congress doesn't play well on television, and there really isn't much of anything they can do uh, to increase their standing among the public. So they're a great punching bag to run against. We did, uh, we looked at American institutions and uh, compared the Supreme Court. So, and the point Doug's making is in the U.S. Congress, because of the openness of it and there's factions within the parties, all of the debates, uh, anti-Republican disputes within the party, Democratic disputes, mm -hmm. they all come to the fore in the American system, whereas in others they don't. But in the American system, we looked at the Supreme Court right at the time when they were making all sorts of unpopular decisions. And the Supreme Court, because the conflict's internal, it's not shown, we argued in the paper anyway, uh, Supreme Court approval ratings are in the 70s. It's of all the American institutions, the Supreme Court, and in my view, a large part of that is because you don't see the fights. And in the Japanese Parliament or in the British House of Commons, they're, not on TV. they're, they're, they're rated higher. They're not, they're not rated at 100% or anything, but they're rated higher than the, and it's because the fights in, occur internally. You don't see everything like we see in the U.S. So yeah, I long for question time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's a great point. I think it'd be fascinating to go back and look at Congress's numbers from about 19, when did C-SPAN come in? About 19, mid-80s, early well, 80s? Well, I know all the high, the high points for Congress uh, are periods in which a lot has happened. The highest point for Congress was uh, the Great Society with right. Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Congress went up as approval for Reagan went up. Uh, approval for the Congress went up as they did. Not, it doesn't get up like for presidents, but it does rise and fall with when people think the Congress is getting something done and passing legislation, it rises. Yeah, the one pattern noticed long ago by uh, Dick Fenno uh, was that even though people don't like Congress, uh, they are much more favorable towards their congressmen. Um, but even that's been going down of late. So that, um, you know, tr traditionally people say, oh, Congress, I hate them, but my own congressman, I like them a lot. Um, but what we've had recently is that the ability of incumbent congressmen to win the votes of people of the other party has gone down as the parties have become more polarized. Yeah. Uh, and even approval ratings for people's own congressmen who tend to be closer to them have gone down. Okay, so we, we talked all the time about the president. We haven't talked at all about the Senate and the House. Now, I know we don't have much time, but I'm putting you guys, so I'm taking over the Bill Whalen role here. I'm putting you guys on the spotlight. Bill, give me the probability of uh, the Democrats taking the Senate and the House, and then to you. 
Uh, I could wimp out and steal the New York Times study of this yeah. from the other day. They gave it, I think, 60% chance. Yeah. Uh, 60 sounds about right because that means they have to pick up four seats to make it even, five to get over the top, um, and if Trump is going to struggle in these states. So it's fascinating to see, though, in a state like Ohio, for example, Rob Portman yeah. uh, is holding on. In a state like Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey, who I thought was probably toast, he's hanging on. He's hanging in, yeah. Uh, but, again, the problem for Republicans, it's the same as the presidential situation, Dave, and it's just broadening the map. And the Republicans are playing defense, not just not just in states like Pennsylvania and, uh, and Ohio. They're playing defense in North Carolina. They're playing defense with John McCain in Arizona. So it doesn't take much to, to House. Tumble. House, I think, is safe. Uh, they have to pick up. I think the Democrats have 188 seats, if I'm not mistaken. they got to pick up 30 seats. That's just the way the seats are drawn. Uh, that's not going to happen. They could maybe pick up half to two-thirds of that total. Yeah, I think the Democrats' chances in the Senate are a little better, though Bill's absolutely right that some races that we better thought— Better than 0.6? Yeah, so more like three out of four. Okay. Uh, but races that we thought were going to be really close uh, so far, like the Portman race in Ohio is an example, the Ayotte race in Nor um, New Hampshire looks like she has a decent shot of uh, yeah. holding on to that. Um, so it, it, it's closer than I would have guessed a few months ago that the moderate Republicans that seem to be able to distance themselves from Trump without um, people running away. The House, extremely hard for the Democrats to win the House. Not, not to uh, try and evade the question. I, I think the probability, uh, I, I would say the probability of a 50-50 Senate, in my view, is higher than a 51 Democrat 49. Because in those races, Ayotte, Burzel behind McCain, I saw in the last set of polls, is up six. Yeah. So these people like Portman, you're saying, there are enough of those seats where they're pulling, uh, doing better than I thought they would. And uh, the Toomey in Pennsylvania is only down 1%, which is well within the margin of error. So. But they're largely at the mercy of Donald Trump. That's a good, yes, a good place to enough. be. I think the last week of the election is going to be fascinating in this regard if she has statistically a lead on a nationwide. I went back and looked at polling in previous elections, and by the time you get to September, things are pretty much in place. I looked at 2004, for example. There were 33 polls in September of 2004. Bush led in 29 of them. So you kind of see that people yeah. locked in their two <clears> positions. But if she is ahead nationally going in the final week and they know they have 270 electoral votes pretty much locked up now she has a choice she could either try to go for a big knockout punch in the electoral college and try to push it north of 350 electoral votes or she can go to about six or seven states and start talking about vote for me and elect this person next to me so we'll have a democratic senate and we can get things done you know i i uh, i think the following i think that the further Hillary Clinton gets ahead, the closer, the better Donald Trump would be because I think my view of what's happening is voters look out there and they go, my God, she's up seven. Ooh, her as president. Well, yikes. I better rethink that. Then Trump gets close. They go, oh, my God. I'm serious. It reminds me of the Barber Boxer Hershenson race for the Senate in California, right. where every time boxers get up six, seven points, people think, oh, then they run out and Hershenson and get close and they think, I can't take. So I, I actually think there's that, if she, if she gets too far ahead, I think there's going to be a reaction against that because they're going to be thinking that. So I, I mean, that's, I'm probably alone in that, but. I'm trying to grok that guess. too far ahead concept. Yeah, you, uh, you, you got my guess on it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I, I think the main thing that happens is the pressure on people voting for third-party candidates disappears. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, the stay-at-home vote. 
so right now in our most recent poll, we had uh, Johnson at six, Stein at four, and two for other. I don't have no idea who those other two could possibly be. I don't think there's a chance in the world that the third party candidates combined will get 12%. They got that, 2%, less than 2% in 2012, yeah. all of them together. So, so if they got five, I think that would be a lot. So that's them. interesting because it was very trendy as of a month or two ago to say that, well, can Gary Johnson get to 15% and crash a debate? Can, uh, can third party candidates get 15 to 20% combined? But you're saying that's, that's tapering off. Typically, I, I don't think there's it. any chance of that. But the, the thing there is a chance of is uh, if Clinton were up by, you know, seven, eight, Ten points in the polls. There's very little pressure uh, on Republicans, say, who are voting for Gary Johnson, uh, to switch the vote uh, yeah. for Trump, right. even if they maybe marginally agree with Trump. On so the you're issues. saying, so you're saying, even if she's ahead, there you'll expect a third party vote to go up. In close races, the third party vote Goes evaporates down. in yeah. the last month. Yeah, right. um, and what we haven't seen is a great example of a race that uh, wasn't very close. Uh, I think. Maybe uh, 1992, uh, where the Perot votes were, uh, stayed at a reasonable level. Uh, it slipped toward the end. Uh, yeah. But, it, yeah, the others didn't. Wallace in 68 and so on. Yeah, so that was a very close election. Yeah. Okay. Well, guys, good stuff. I enjoy talking about this. You've been listening to Pole Position, a Hoover Institution podcast. For more information about Hoover, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Daily Report. It provides you with the best of what Hoover offers, studies, analyses, commentaries from our fellows, all sent to your inbox five days a week. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whelan. Thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org decision2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.